Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Selmer for AJHP Voices. I'm speaking with Dr. Gordon Schiff about the AJHP article, Analysis of Variations in the Display of Drug Names in Computerized Prescriber Order Entry Systems. This paper has a number of co-authors. Dr. Schiff asked me to acknowledge in particular two who are pharmacy practitioners, Dr. Mary Amato and Dr. Alejandra Salazar. Dr. Schiff is Associate Director of the Center for Patient Safety Research and Practice at Brigham and Women's Hospital. The center is led by Dr. David Bates. Dr. Schiff also serves as Quality and Safety Director of the Harvard Medical School Center for Primary Care. Gordy, uh, thanks so much for taking time to have this discussion with me. Uh, one of the things I'd like to ask you is that the analysis reported in this AJHP article is part of a much larger study funded by the Food and Drug Administration on the safety of computerized prescriber order entry. Could you give us some basic facts about that larger study? Sure. We answered an RFP for the FDA who is interested in trying to understand medication safety in the broadest sense. And, of course, they study the chemical products and the outcomes from their use, but they were also increasingly seeing reports about medication safety issues related to CPOE. We actually had done some earlier work with uh, MedMarex of the USP looking at some of the safety. They received uh, hundreds of thousands of medication safety reports, and 7% of those were related to CPOE. So in their wisdom, the FDA gave us the opportunity to explore this issue further and we uh, identified, I guess we call it a convenient sample of 10 different uh, CPOE systems. Uh, actually, several were in the same, we had an inpatient and outpatient, but we had a total of 10 systems. And we spent a two-year period studying these systems. We went out and did site visits. We developed a tool, we called it the CAT tool, the computerized prescribing assessment tool, where we asked a series of standardized questions in terms of how orders were entered, how they were displayed on the system, and we learned what we could. We tried to hear about problems. We collected data about safety reports. And then we did some of the studies that we'll be talking about today uh, related to how the drugs uh, were displayed and drug names were used in the, in the workflow and the display. So th this was part of this larger system. We've published those findings as part of a white paper. It's available at the FDA website. I think if people just Google my name and FDA, and the name of the study is CPOEMS, CPOE Medication Safety. Uh, that's available, or people could write for copies, and we've published three or four papers off of that, and we're thrilled that this is now going to be one of them coming out shortly. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, thank you for that background. Let's just talk then about your paper uh, in AJHP specifically. What was the objective for the analysis you report here? Well, one of the um, issues from the FDA's perspective, and because they're involved in drug names and how drugs are named and what happens as a result of the way 
drugs or display names are displayed was this very question about well, were there variations, were there error potential, were there safety issues related to drug names. Now, you and I know, I've been a prescriber for 40 plus years, that there's confusion between the brand name and the, and the generic name. Sometimes there's multiple brand names. There's issues with look-alike, sound-alike issues with drug names, and sometimes even the FDA has had to step in and change the name of a drug that ends up being confusing. So this idea about drug names being confusing is not a new issue, but we were interested in some particular potentially unique aspects of this as the drug names were displayed in these electronic systems. So we felt that we were kind of breaking new ground and, and exploring that aspect. So when I mentioned this CAT tool, we had a series of questions in the CAT tool that asked people to enter the drug either generically or brand name and see how it was displayed in different ways, seeing what some of the features were. So uh, it, I would say this was one of the areas of particular interest in this broader study, but it was one of particular interest to the FDA. And um, we collected, it's almost say a hodgepodge of different issues related to drug names over the course of this uh, two-year study, and we've assembled them in this paper. Well, you, you've described this assessment tool that you developed. You applied your assessment tool at six sites for 10 different systems. Uh, please describe that analysis, including the key findings. We had a total of six different sites. Several of them had a certain CPOE system inpatient, and then they would have a different system outpatient. So we, but we had 10 different systems that we tested. Each one of those, we tried to get typical users, and then we also tried to work with the people who sort of oversaw the system. You know, typically there would be a pharmacist who sort of over, helped oversee the system and a health IT person maybe some clinicians, and we would try and identify the key people. We work with them, and then we did a simulated session, one of the sessions we did, where we actually sat and entered these various orders, again, in, in these 10 systems. Mm -hmm. What can you say about the key findings from that aspect of, of your analysis? Well, I guess in one word, variation, or maybe two words, wide variations. The different systems behaved and performed differently and in some ways unpredictably. We had a, a couple of homegrown systems and then we had commercial systems. We have representatives of the major systems. We don't identify which one was which by name. That was part of our reassurance or precondition in doing the study. But So we weren't trying to compare or decide which system was better or worse. I think what we could say is that we found variations and quirks in all the systems, many of them uh, were unique to one particular system. Many of the others were, were things that we saw in multiple different systems or different ways. And what I mean by variations is if you go to order a drug, some systems, if you type in the brand name, you can't find it. In fact, we got off the plane to one of the systems, so we, you know, we went to these site visits, and the first thing we did was meet a resident who started complaining about how frustrating it is. They, they oh. look at the drug by the brand name, they type it in, and you can't get the order. Now, this system... And again, when we say systems, it really has to do with the actual intrinsic properties of the, the particular system, as well as how it's been configured at that institution. But that institution was trying to uh, ensure as much as possible that residents, such as this person complaining to us, wrote their prescriptions with a generic name, which, of course, we like that. We think generic names are the one from an educational point of view. Uh, physicians should learn and use, but you can see how that could create frustrations. Um, other systems, if you wanted a, like a combination product like trimethoprim sulfa, if you typed in trimethoprim, it would find it, but 
if you typed in the sulfa prefix, it wouldn't. So it depended on the order that the uh, drug was in there. Some searched on the string. Some just searched on the first letters. So just finding the drugs. And then the real uh, eye-opening thing was the way these drugs were displayed. So we have examples, I believe, in the article uh, screenshot of some displays of either the drug list or, or even the drug warnings that have both the brand name and the generic name used at different parts within this alert. So it's sort of this schizophrenia which they should use and we felt that was confusing. There should probably be a standardized way. The Institute for Safe Medical Practices says, for example, you should probably use the generic name with a brand name in parentheses. Of course, there could be more than one brand name, so that's a little rub there. But you can understand that, you know, for example, furosemide with maybe Lasix in parentheses would be a, a standard way to display that diuretic. But we saw all sorts of different combinations and permutations that, uh, again, we give illustrations in the study. And even another thing that was done, and our informaticists really tore out their hair when they saw this, people were actually, I guess for lack of a better word, kind of bastardizing the drug name in the mm. database. So, you know, you want to have um, data integrity, uh, standardized, coded drug names, but people would put in all sorts of other information like don't order this or only order this in a certain hospital. So the, here you have the drug name and it's been altered by these efforts. So I, we would call them workarounds, well-meaning right. workarounds to try to make these systems work better to meet their needs. So in a way you could say some of these things we're observing are, are kind of symptoms of system not meeting people's needs or when there was an error, they wanted to try and warn the physicians and they felt there was no easier way to, to get these warnings uh, heated. So, but having said that, it, the, the drug names became this kind of um, free text field in some cases right. that uh, created more problems than they were solving. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very good overview of what you found in that part of your study. Well, as I understand it, Gordy, at one particular site then, your team performed a retrospective look at data from more than 4 million drug orders from 2011 through 2013. And what were the key findings there? Well, we did a series of targeted looks, but related to drug names, we had a particular question in mind and uh, we came up with some very interesting findings related to it. We said, how were the drug names displayed and could that be a source of confusion? This site did something very, um, I would say, useful and creative. They put in the drug name displayed exactly how I ordered it. So if I ordered Lasix, it would appear as Lasix on the patient's medication list. If I ordered furosemide, then they would have furosemide on their medication list. Well, that kind of makes sense if Dr. Schiff you know, is used to using Lasix, and when he looks at his medication list, he's going to recognize it. He's not going to know what furosemide is. This is a simple example. People probably know both names for that drug. But we tried to see how many patients are both drugs appearing simultaneously on a patient's medication list. As you can imagine, this gave us cause for concern related to errors. So if I'm getting both Lasix and furosemide, I, the patient, Mary Smith, is getting both of those drugs simultaneously, there's a potential for a drug a medication error. And of course, many patients wouldn't know that those are the same drug. Again, we're not the first people to report that people are taking a brand name and a generic name of the same product inadvertently simultaneously. But having said that, we were observing here's a situation where we were 
looking at the situation where could this be a source of confusion and first of all in duplication and we did find that roughly one in 400 patients had one of these uh, duplicates on their medication list uh, you know Synthroid and levothyroxine on the same medication list right. we even did some digging to try and understand why that was we can talk about that in a second but as, as you can imagine Bill this is uh, something that as a pharmacist, if you see those two drugs on somebody's medication list, the first thing word that's going to scream out to you is a medication reconciliation. Like somebody's got to straighten right. this out and at least warn the patient not to take both pills. Should they perhaps have two different bottles? Right. Well, uh, that brings up uh, a point that I'm interested in, uh, Gordy. From that deep dive into drug orders over two years, did you have any sense of the extent to which pharmacists' review of the orders? resolved ambiguities or errors before the medications were administered to the patient? Yeah, I, I, I wish I could say yes. We uh, only were kind of looking at things at the front end rather than the back end, although well, I'll tell sure. you about some other examples of things. We um, certainly would like to think that the typical patient that has both of those medications on their list is going to get counseled by a pharmacist and get that picked up. At the pharmacy end, we I'm sure that there's... Um, you know, you have drug-drug interaction software. I'm sure you have drug duplication software. And even at the front end, our doctors, you know, if I, if somebody was on Lasix and I ordered furosemide, the system does have a warning saying, this is a duplicate order. Are you sure you want to go ahead and proceed? So this has a, a lot to do with how well decision support is designed and whether people are blowing past orders or, or, or heating orders. But I think at the pharmacy end, there was also drug duplicate alert warnings that I, I, pharmacists are probably better at physicians than heeding those and, again, counseling the patients, calling the physician. One of the things we found that hopefully meant that the pharmacist wasn't going to have to see this is that some of these older orders, there'd be like an older order for Lasix and then a newer order for furosemide. So some of these were older inactive orders. So in a sense, what we were uncovering is other problems in the functionality and workflow of these systems, right? So certain medications that were no longer active are still on the patient's active medication list. That's a problem. And so this is sort of a, it sort of this problem interacts with that problem, which is another one of the findings we found in the larger study. So yes, we need pharmacists, first of all, to aware that this is an issue. I think they already have an awareness. And yes, Bill, I'm sure most of these were detected at the pharmacy level and not uh, did, did not therefore reach the patient level, but it's, it's, it's hard to know. We didn't study that. Sure, I understand. You know, uh, Gordy, in general, uh, I'm curious, I guess I should say, if there are any differences among these issues with respect to the outpatient environment versus the inpatient environment. Any comments on that? Yeah, well, we mainly studied the outpatient environment, although a couple of systems we looked at did an inpatient and an outpatient system. I think there are differences. We um, know that probably in the hospital, there's probably more checks and balances in terms of more people's hands, the prescriptions are passing through, the, nur the nurse, the pharmacist. So we think there's probably more layers of protection, although, of course, we know that more medications are prescribed in the outpatient setting. So there's a difference in trade-off there. In our hospital, we looked at two systems, both homegrown, and they were totally very different systems. They behaved very differently. So we would see one quirk in the inpatient and not in the outpatient and vice versa. So, And of course, these are the same doctors who are going back and forth who have to keep their brain. Yeah. You know, it's one thing I just get used to one system and 
even though it has its quirks, but the fact that there's not this standardization, and by the way, we have residents, for example, or a system in one hospital, and then they're going to the VA, and you know they're they're working in two or three hospitals, or even attending doctors, you know, admit patients in more more than one hospital. We're pretty sure that if there was more standardization around this, it would be better. I want to make one more point, which you hear a lot about frustration with people, doctors feeling frustrated, prescribers with the amount of time it takes and the the, the amount of uh, buttons that have to be clicked and the warnings. We've come to believe from this study and other studies that things that are frustrating to doctors are safety issues. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to work around, I can't figure out how to order a prednisone taper or how to order a complicated insulin regimen, so I'm just going to take to writing it free text. So mm -hmm. when I'm frustrated, I just put in a workaround, and of course what that means is the decision support is not able to review my order or prevent me from writing some wildly overdosed quantities by mistake, putting an extra zero in. So I think clinician frustration and safety have a congruence that is underappreciated, and I think the, the vendors, instead of saying, well, you just have to be better trained or get used to the system or this is just the way it is, there really seems to be a little more listening to the frontline users. I think that's true at the pharmacy end as well as the clinical yeah. clinician end. Right. Well, Gordy, um, uh, thinking about the uh, specific problems you highlight in your article with respect to display of drug names in computerized prescribing systems, what are your recommendations for resolving or avoiding these problems? Well, I've touched on some of them, just to re-summarize. One is just at the starting gate from the signing of these drug names in the first place. I mean, if you have a, a sort of a 10-syllable unpronounceable generic name and a you know one-syllable brand name, you're sort of going to push people in the wrong direction. So we need generic names that are sort of uh, well-chosen, easy enough to remember. We actually have one other recommendation. This is, might sound like it's coming out of sort of left field here, but it turns out to be very central. We believe in prescribing by indication. And you mm -hmm. and I have talked about this before at some meetings, and I probably should come back to your program and talk more about the work we're doing. But like you have hydroxyzine and hydralazine, if I type in itching, you're not going to get hydralazine, a blood pressure medicine, by mistake, because the computer will be smart enough to filter that out, as opposed to if I'm pulling it down from a menu, you know, H-Y-D-R-A-L, you know, or hydroxyzine. Or another favorite one we show in another paper is penicillamine, you know, when you're ordering so, so if I'm ordering for a strep throat, I'm not going to get penicillamine as a choice. So yeah. indications, hooking to indications, better choice of names when the drugs are initially assigned these names, more uniformity and standardization in terms of how they're displayed, probably using those ISMP guidelines of generic brand in parentheses if there's a need, and then uh, making sure, of course, decision support and alerts are consistent with that and and are not overloading doctors. So if you know, again, if I'm having 10 alerts, I'm going to overlook the thing. The doctor, you're you're ordering furosemide at the same time as uh, Lasix is on the chart. Probably recommendations about keeping medication lists up to date and making that easier, right? So you don't have all these old drugs, yeah. old different names hanging around. Um, another thing we found is that people were trying to put in two different orders for the same drug on purpose mm. in a good way. So let's say I wanted. Uh, levothyroxine, and I wanted, you know, 62 micrograms. So I would order, put an order for 50, and then an order for 12.5, because I couldn't figure out how to do that in the system. So purposefully putting in an yeah. order in that way, 
yet the system should have made it easier to just order and of course if I inadvertently call the first order Synthroid and the second order Levothyroxine or the next doctor that came along then you can see how we could get into some of these quandaries so we should make it easier for some of these a little more complex orders to be entered without people having to resort to workarounds or falling into mm -hmm. some of these trap we found there so so those are some of my general recommendations yeah. we, we have other issues that we found which we think would sort of add to safety especially related to drug discontinuation I have to I can't rest without waving this flag if somebody has an allergic reaction to a medication I go in my system we saw this with almost all the systems this problem by the way and I discontinue I say you know angioedema from the ACE inhibitor allergic to ACE inhibitor and I cancel it I, I even have warnings if I go to order again meanwhile the order is still sitting at the pharmacy for that lisinopril and they're even yeah. getting calls saying please renew your lisinopril it's your due 30 days is up uh -huh. and that order doesn't get transmitted to the pharmacy we're working with sure scripts to create that communication a link but so my system isn't talking to your system and that can lead to errors as well Right. Well, Gordy, I'd like to step back from this specific study that you're reporting in AJHP and ask you to look at overall risks associated with computerized prescribing. From your perspective, what are the most important issues that need to be resolved? Working from where we just spoke, I do think that it's called cancel our X in SureScripts. I think that's, that's a big one as far as uh, actual errors happening from that. There have been some mm -hmm. studies, actually one was from our uh, investigator in our institution, although used a different database, uh, different CPOE system, you know, where, where there's a fair number of patients who are getting these prescriptions renewed when they've actually been discontinued for safety issues. Mm -hmm. I think another actually issue is, is monitoring patients for adverse effects. We've just done, been doing some studies trying to call patients a month or four months after they've been started on new medications just to have some surveillance about adverse drug reactions. I wouldn't say that CPOE is, is the cause of that problem, but I do think that electronic prescribing could help us monitor our patients better, maybe create some automated ways of reaching out to patients, maybe a text message, just making sure they're not having a cough if they've been started on an ACE inhibitor or something more serious. Another thing is probably if we could have a more standardized interface that the prescribers could be looking at. So, you know, if you sit down and each dashboard is confusing, you know, I mean, in a car, usually yeah. you can just sort of get in the car and rent a car at the airport, you know, where the speedometer is and the steering wheel and the brakes. You try and do that with different CPOE systems and you're just going to get confused. So uh, now, of course, there are different vendors try to differentiate themselves by having their look and feel be displayed differently. But we, we think this is an error-prone uh, situation if, if I need, you know, 16 hours of training just to figure out how to order medications. Let me just add one more, and this is in some ways trumps, pardon the expression, all the others I've just said. When I run into a problem or a question, I should get instant help. You know, it could be that I'm so stupid or I haven't been trained or I'm missing some obvious button on the screen. But because I'm going to do maybe a workaround if I don't get help. So I should be, you know, it's not I shouldn't be put on hold for 15 minutes or file a ticket that they get back to me in three days, which is sort mm. of what seems to happen around here or many places. Or somebody saying, oh, that's a good idea not to have the brand names displayed differently than the generic. We'll consider that, you know, in three years in our next release. The real-time help and listening and frankly, the benefit would be bilateral 
it would be this fact that somebody's giving me the help so I can actually help my patient in real time so I can move on and not do something stupid or erroneous or and as well as the listening at the other end. You know, we've just had hypothetically someone would say, you know, eleven calls in the last month related to this button not making sense and they don't know how to use that. The answer to that of course is not that we should start training doctors better, it's we should be designing the software smarter so that it's more intuitive and less confusing and uh there's more awareness of those problems. So and actually, let me just even take this a step further, bring, really bringing me back full circle to where we started this conversation in some ways, pharmacists and clinicians. Mm-hmm. So any time a, a pharmacist sees an error that I've written, okay, there ought to be a quick way we have to figure out, you know, when they should interrupt me and when they shouldn't, not just to like clarify that so that, you know, the pharmacist commence the drug, but we should be learning from that. I had a situation where they called me, you left your DEA off the off the, um, the prescription for a controlled substance. Now, of course, when I was handwriting prescriptions, that was possible. But I said, no, no, that's impossible. Our prescription puts it in automatically. Well, the pharmacist was right. There was some glitch in the software that had crept in that day. So there ought to be a way of really nipping these problems in the bud, you know, and learning from that. And and that, again, requires crossing these silos, better collaboration. I think along with this indications-based prescribing, I think it would make things much safer. Sure. Gordy, um, one thought that's running through my mind at the moment in terms of making computerized prescribing safer, is it just a matter of appealing to the best instincts of the various providers of these systems and so forth? Or is there someone in society that can actually have some leverage to force constructive changes? Yeah, well, you're you're asking a very important question and a very, I guess, one that I, I can't give you the exact answer. There was a report on HIT safety from the Institute of Medicine that was really centered around the recommendations just along what you're saying, that there really should be more transparency, more accountability, more responsiveness, to uh, the concerns, you know, there's been a certain tug of war. I mean, should this be regulated by the FDA, for example? I think the FDA didn't do the, didn't fund us to do the study because they were considering doing more regulation here. They think they felt they needed a little more intelligence and, and sure. investigation of that. But there have been calls for the FDA to be doing more regulation and what kind of software, certain software they do regulate, like certain things that relate to clinical diagnostics, et cetera. There's kind of a tug of war of where that line should be drawn. The ONC has tried to uh, push strongly on more interoperability. This is the Office of National Coordinator for Health Office. Right. But I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously we have a new administration in Washington that wants to get rid of regulation. So you're asking me what new regulation do we need? It's going to have a chilling effect on, on, on regulation. In fact, I think this idea that you have to get rid of two for every one you add, I don't think anybody's going to uh, wake up tomorrow and say, oh, it's, I'm going to have an easy time. This is a no-brainer. You have to transmit when drugs are discontinued from the every vendor is going to be required to transmit that from the uh, prescribing end to the pharmacy end, uh, which probably is a regulation or a standard we, we do need to save some lives. I worry about some chilling effect in terms of this kind of oversight. I mean, this idea about it's just a marketplace and every man for himself and let the market decide which system is best is is probably not going to solve some of the problems that we've talked about today. 
Mm-hmm. In bringing our conversation to a close, uh, any thoughts or words of advice for pharmacists related to the safety of computerized prescribing? Wow. This is a question I hadn't thought about in advance, but let me tell you, I, I was a big proponent of CPOE. I got up in front of a group of pharmacists probably oh, 15 years ago. I was at a conference, Mick Murray, you probably know who he is. He's a pharmacy leader from Registry who's been involved in CPOE. And I, I talked about what were what I set for the virtues of, of electronic ordering of drugs. This was a time when you know, I, I bet 2% or less of drugs are ordered electronically, you know, you know, and first of all, the, the, we're talking about the legibility factor, but just some of these other features about being able to do some of this decision support and improve prescriptions. And the pharmacists were really, uh, we were on our side. By the way, I have a pharmacy technician's license. I worked in the pharmacy. I love pharmacy <laughs> and pharmacists. And I did that to try and understand quality improvement from the eyes of the pharmacist as well as obviously the clinician and how to bring those together. Um, and actually, that's sort of where I'm going with this story. So I, I was up there talking to the pharmacist and they were kind of nodding their head. They were sort of excited about this. It'll be really great and we don't have to decipher bad handwriting and the orders would all have the, the EA number on there. Uh, and then all of a sudden they said, well, well then what, what are we going to do? Wait, that's what we spend our whole day doing, entering, you know, because it already be entered in the prescription. And then, then we really got down to the conversation that needed to be had. And we began to talk about the, the, the role, the extended role of the pharmacist, not just transcribing illegible piece of paper right. that my patients bring to them, but really playing this higher level collaborative role in terms of monitoring patients and counseling patients and checking my orders and making suggestions for better choices and correcting my CPOE errors, right? So that yeah. suddenly this whole new vista opens up of, of, of opportunities. And, and, and I guess what my message would be is we don't want to use this to dumb down pharmacists into regiment pharmacist role in the you know, production line of writing and dispensing prescriptions. We, we should use this as a way of kind of opening things up to more sort of exciting and innovative ways of collaborating, some of which I, I've mentioned and we can kind of guess at. I think some we don't really uh, uh, know. One thing's worth trying to think about is how do you understand adverse reactions in patients, right? Well, you could say they're severe or they're mild or they're tolerable or they're late onset or they're early onset or they're typical. But what are the real dimensions, because each of these adverse reactions, are they're likely or unlikely, or there was an error, or there's not an error, or there's previous reports of this. So as we begin to think about what we call, what I'm calling the dimensions of an adverse reaction, we sure as heck need pharmacists to help us think about this. And, you know, both for making decisions on an individual patient level, right? So should we stop the drug in this patient as, you know, as the risk and benefit, you know, some minor thing that once a week, I have a slight cough. It's, it's probably not intolerable. We'll keep you on the ACE inhibitor versus somebody who's up all night hacking and can't sleep and quality of life is intolerable with this medication or reversible or irreversible. You know, people are willing to feel dizzy for or have their hair fall out for a few weeks. Is this an irreversible side effect? Will my hair grow back? Um, I think we really are going to need to begin to understand what's happening with these drugs and these patients in much deeper and richer ways, and pharmacists can be so 
important. Obviously, you have the knowledge and the time and the interface with the patients. That would be my vision is, sure. is the way the CPOE could really be leveraged. Actually, there's indications-based prescribing as well. We, we need pharmacists. Who's going to figure out what are the drugs of choice, right? Sure. It shouldn't be the drug rep saying, hey, this is the best drug for, yeah. for acne. We just uh, marketed it even though it costs, you know, 10 times more. And they don't say this. There's no evidence that it's any better. But, but we, we should just... The drugs of choice. Let's figure out in a hospital what are our drugs of choice for certain situations. First line, second sure. line. Those those are going to all take a lot of collaborative brain power that we can bring together between the two disciplines of medicine right, and pharmacy. Right. That's a very exciting vision, and I think that uh, there are many pharmacy practice leaders and institutions and uh, practice sites throughout the country that share that vision and uh, are working very hard to achieve it. Gordy, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking time to have it with me. Best wishes for uh, your continued research in this area. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this has been great to get me going, uh, thinking about these issues as well with you, Bill. This has been an interview with Dr. Gordon Schiff about the AJHP article, Analysis of Variations in the Display of Drug Names in Computerized Prescriber Order Entry Systems. For AJHP Voices, this is William Zelmer. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.